Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Greg Ipp, Chief Economist at the Wall Street Journal. We talk about his book, Foolproof, Why Safety Can Be Dangerous and How Danger Makes Us Safe. During our conversation, you'll come across a lot of economic terms such as the paradox of thrift, the euro financial crisis, the Lehman Brothers collapse, the Fed policies under Paul Volcker, and how that led to the Great Moderation, which subsequently created instability in the financial markets. Greg also explains what Minsky meant by stability is destabilizing by looking at capital control situations in the financial markets, as well as looking at American football helmets, which have the intention of protecting the player, but could actually cause greater harm than good, and why we experience more forest fires and flooding. Visit economicrockstar.com forward slash Greg Ip, G-R-E-G-I-P to get all the links and resources mentioned in today's episode. I'd like to give a big shout out to Mark Monsky, Economics Instructor at Wake Tech Community College, for suggesting that I contact Greg Ip for the episode and for putting forward a couple of questions. Thanks, Mark. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com, where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. But the fact of the matter is, is that we know in economics that if somebody's going to save more, somebody has to borrow more. Otherwise, what happens to that saving? If everybody saves more, then nobody spends and the economy spirals down. As hard helmets became more widespread, so did the incidence of spinal injuries, broken necks, and per, uh, quadrant paraplegias. And that problem wasn't capped until the college and the professional league banned the practice of spearing. If you try too hard to eliminate risk from all aspects of life, then you may end up poorer for it. So in the economic realm, for example, risk-taking is kind of necessary for people to start new businesses. Hi, Frank Comba here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honored to have Greg Ip join me today. Hi, Greg. Welcome to the show. Hi, Frank. Thanks for having me on. Greg Ip is one of the best-known economics journalists in the United States. He is currently Chief Economics Commentator of the Wall Street Journal and writes about U.S. and global economic developments and policy each week in the Capital Account column and on Real-Time Economics, Wall Street Journal's economics blog. From 2008 to January 2015, he was U.S. Economics Editor of The Economist magazine. Greg is the author of Foolproof, Why Safety Can Be Dangerous and How Danger Makes Us Safe, as well as author of The Little Book of Economics, How the Economy Works in the Real World. Greg, fantastic book. I'm reading it at the moment, Foolproof. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to reach out to you, because you've really condensed this whole idea of a crisis and the history behind it based upon a specific team in that we feel that we're living in a more safer environment and a safer economy. And what is the underlying theme of the book Foolproof? 
what I'm trying to do here, Frank, is explain why even though we as a civilization and uh, are the people that we put in charge of things like the environment and our economy are always trying to make our surroundings more safe and more stable, sometimes those very things they do actually end up achieving the opposite. And the reason why is that if we think our surroundings are safer, we take more risks. So, for example, one of the reasons we had a global financial crisis was because we had gone through 25 years of economic calm before that. And I think that encouraged people to take on more debt because they think that we wouldn't have crises or bad recessions again. And something goes on um, that's very similar in the way we manage our environment. Uh, take forests, for example. For a long time, our forest managers thought that wildfire was really bad. It was very destructive and should be suppressed at all costs. But eventually we learned that by suppressing all forest fires, you actually leave more fuel in the forest and they get denser. And that actually makes bigger forest fires possible later on. And that's actually one of the reasons why forest fires are getting bigger and more destructive in the Western United States. So throughout my book, I've tried to explore different aspects of how we have these unintended consequences of trying to make ourselves safer and what we can do about attenuating that tendency. The idea regarding the work of economists and environmentalists and ecologists, as you in a way stated regarding the forest fires, is to learn from what happened in the past and try to create safety mechanisms. And it's this safety mechanism that propels us into thinking that we live in a safer environment and people tend to expect a safety net to emerge so that they don't take on all the risks or possible fatalities that a stock market could bring about in terms of hemorrhaging your cash flow. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, when we convince people that the world around them is safer, they begin to take that for granted, and that actually changes their behavior. So a good example is that um, because national home prices hadn't declined on a sustained basis for many, many decades in the United States, both people who bought houses and the lenders who lent money for them to buy those houses basically assumed that home prices never would go down. The Federal Reserve wouldn't permit that. And so they were willing to pay ever higher prices for houses and to finance ever larger mortgages. But it was exactly that sort of assumption that guaranteed that eventually home prices would go down because it just made possible this uh, housing bubble. Let's take a very different example. Uh, in 2012, uh, the New York City area was struck by Superstorm Sandy. And this was the second most destructive storm in the history of the United States. Only Katrina in 2005 was more damaging. And a lot of people said, well, it's because of global warming. And while it's true that we do have global warming going on and sea levels have risen a little bit, the main reason Sandy was so destructive was because so much infrastructure and housing and buildings and economic activity had grown up in the New York City area. And the area doesn't get hit very often by hurricanes. But we know from history that if you go back four or five hundred years, they do get hit approximately twice per century. It's just that the last one before Sandy had, had been in 1938. And that one did a lot of damage. But between 1938 in 2012, New York City got a lot bigger and a lot richer, especially like Long Island and New Jersey. And people basically forgot these types of events come along and they kind of took their safety from these elements for granted. And that sort of guaranteed that they would be unprepared and that there would be so much destruction when uh, Sandy came along. And you alluded to the situation in the likes of Japan as well, that possibly could be prone to being hit by a tsunami, but they put in measures in place to try and prevent a tsunami from destroying cities uh, along the, the coast and people tend to gravitate then toward that safe area. Well, that's exactly right. So in the case of the Fukushima uh, nuclear power plants, 
Uh, when they built seawalls to protect those power plants, they went back to the early 1960s to try and consider what was the highest uh, tsunami that was likely to hit the area and they had to protect against. But the Tohoku earthquake recently was much more powerful than anything in recent memory. It wasn't the most powerful in history because now with more research, they can find um, earthquakes and tsunamis of comparable magnitude from 1,000 to 2,000 years ago. But it's just human memory didn't go back far enough. And so there was the assumption that if you had planned for the events you'd seen in the last 40 or 50 years, you'd be okay. And here in the United States, there's a similar phenomenon that geographers have come to label the levee effect. And the levee effect refers to the fact that long floodplains of rivers and uh, bodies of water, uh, engineers build levees, or in Europe, as they call them, dikes, to keep the water out. And that makes the floodplain uh, inhabitable. And so you build up factories and cities and so on. But what this means is that if the levee ever actually fails, there's now more property waiting to be destroyed. And so that levee effect actually tends to maximize the damage that occurs if the levee ever fails. And this is the analogy or the type of analogy that you apply to financial markets then? Yes, well, exactly right. So uh, we have the housing market as an example there. But I would even consider the European financial crisis, which brought down the economies of Greece and Italy and Portugal and Ireland as another good example. So currency crises are kind of a regular event in international finance. They've been going on for a long time. There was a very big one in Europe in the early 1990s when George Soros bet against the British pound and the pound was eventually forced to devalue again. Hence the Deutschmark. So European statesmen decided that the only way to get rid of currency crises was to all have the same currency. So in the early 2000s, a bunch of countries adopted the euro. And what that effect that had was that on people in countries like Germany that had money, uh, that had savings that they needed to lend elsewhere, decided that it was quite safe to lend to Ireland and to Greece and so forth because there was no chance of devaluation any longer. And they also thought that if a country was a member of the euro, it would never be allowed to default. And it was that very assumption of safety that led to the surge in lending across borders so that, um, you know, Irish homeowners and Greek governments could borrow sums of money that simply weren't feasible under the old system. But that accumulation of gigantic debt levels also made it inevitable that eventually people would realize that the money could not be paid back. And that brought on the euro crisis. What you referred to there is chapter five in your book, The Trouble with Saving. And I think it's an absolute fantastic chapter because it describes and explains exactly why this was the case. And um, people seemed a lot more safer because interest rates in these peripheral countries like Ireland and Italy and Greece, they were relatively high and the bonds were a lot higher compared to safer countries like Germany. And once we ended up with the same monetary system, rates were slashed to German levels and we were able to borrow with the high savings rate that Germans historically take on. And that's, that's a problem. You say that's a problem. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, we're used to thinking of saving as being this unalloyed, a positive character attribute. You know, a penny saved is a penny earned. You know, the, uh, the Aesop's fable about the animal that saves all the money for a rainy day. And but the fact of the matter is, is that we know in economics that if somebody's going to save more, somebody has to borrow more. Otherwise, what happens to the saving? If everybody saves more, then nobody spends and the economy spirals down. So Germany, because it saves so much, in some sense, almost compels other countries to borrow more. And German officials don't really believe that or recognize that right now. And their advice to everybody else is to save more just like them without perhaps fully appreciating that you end up in what John Maynard Keynes called the paradox of thrift, which is simply to say that if everybody saves, then nobody earns any money and savings actually go down, not up. And do you think the Germans will be stalwarts in terms of the economy or managing the economy because they get that impression? But there's always that 
in the background that they are the net savers. And it might be a problem in terms of their psyche. And in this book, you reveal that the German word for debt is Schuld, which means guilt. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it could stem from that. Yeah, that's right. Germans culturally uh, are very averse to debt. As you, yes, as you point out, they have this, the same word in German that means debt also means guilt. So, um, yes, culturally, it's very difficult to change. It's a bit of a problem that actually the entire world has right now. I think the whole world, especially multinational companies, are saving too much and not investing enough. And that's actually um, regrettable. One of the things I talk a lot about in my book is that um, we mustn't try too hard to avoid crisis and disaster at all costs because there's a couple of unintended consequences. One is the possibility we've just been talking about, that people take more risks uh, because they feel safe. But another is that the risks you um, you just cause risks to migrate somewhere else and reappear in a different form because you're trained to look for certain ones but not others. The third one is that there's kind of like a fallacy of composition here is that the things that you do to make yourself safe uh, may make others less safe. And I'll give you one example. Anti-lock brakes were installed on a lot of cars in the 80s and 90s, and they're pretty much standard equipment now. But nobody has been able to prove yet that anti-lock brakes actually lead to fewer accidents. They don't seem to have any net benefit to automobile safety at all. And there's a lot of mystery about why this is, but one of the theories is that people with anti-lock brakes perhaps drive a bit faster or brake harder on the road because they have, they're equipped with these brakes. So they might actually, if they avoid an accident, if they actually get into an accident, it's one that occurs at a higher speed. But secondly, they may actually prevent front-end collisions because they can brake harder, but they actually increase rear-end collisions because people keep hitting them in, in the rear. That was the result of at least one study of anti-lock brakes on taxis in Munich, Germany. And, the, and even now, as we explore the promise of driverless cars, from companies like Google, they're noticing something similar. These driverless cars, the computers are so fastidious about obeying all traffic laws that human drivers aren't used to it. And they keep rear-ending them at stop signs and so forth. Oh. So um, this is essentially what we refer to in economics as moral hazard. Well, the moral hazard is the issue of people taking chances because they think they'll be protected. Um, quite a separate issue is this fallacy of composition problem where things that you do to make yourself safe actually end up making other people less safe. And, you know, I just mentioned anti-lock brakes, but you see this phenomenon in other walks of life. For example, in the American game of football, um, we have a problem with the rampant series, uh, issue with concussions. And the leading cause of concussions is actually the players hitting each other with their helmets. Now, this seems a little bit contrary, like aren't helmets supposed to protect the players? Well, they do. They protect them from things like skull fractures and other serious injuries. But they also give the player the feeling of being safe and of the head being protected and encourage them to hit each other harder and more often. When hard helmets first were introduced to football in the 1940s, they did indeed help attenuate certain types of accidents like skull fractures. But the coaches started teaching the players to spear each other, which means to put your head down and the defensive player rams the offensive player in the torso with his head. And this actually loads a lot of pressure on the spinal column. And so as hard helmets became more widespread, so did the incidence of spinal injuries, broken necks and quadrant paraplegias. And that problem wasn't capped until the college and the professional league banned the practice of spearing. But it's still very hard to uh, train players not to hit each other so hard when their heads feel so well protected. And that's one reason why we have this concussion problem. And this is more prevalent now. And we see it in other sports like rugby in, in Europe, There's, even though they may not have the, the helmets. But there's always the idea that because it's a professional sport, 
people are more bigger and fitter and stronger and they hit harder. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people have tried to compare football and rugby, but the studies just don't produce very comparable data. But the, the rules of rugby forbid tackling with the head. You're supposed to actually use your arms and drag the other player to the ground. And the official bodies that govern the rules of rugby have considered requiring hard helmets, but haven't been able to find evidence that they actually protect the players any better. But this goes, uh, the point you made is, is the relevant one, which is that players in rugby have been getting better, bigger, and bigger players hit each other harder. And so one of the questions as a society we have to ask is what is our own appetite for risk? We People go and watch football and rugby because they want to watch an exciting sport. And an exciting sport often involves bigger players hitting each other harder. So society wants people to take risks. It's not obvious that we can fully protect ourselves. And Frank, this takes us to a much broader question that I talk about a lot in our book, which is that if you try too hard to eliminate risk from all aspects of life, then you may end up poorer for it. So in the economic realm, for example, risk-taking is kind of necessary for people to start new businesses. That often means borrowing money. It might mean borrowing money on your credit card. It might mean borrowing money against your house. It might mean um, taking out a loan uh, might, uh, from a, a junk bond investor. And, with, and only with that kind of lending and that kind of risk-taking do you expand businesses and you have the prosperity that makes it so wealthy in the long run. But you just can't get around the fact that if a lot of people borrow at the same time and borrow too much and get carried away, it could produce a crisis. It's kind of an intrinsic element of capitalism. And if we were to somehow be so worried about crises that we were to clamp down on all risk-taking of any kind, we wouldn't have investment or growth. And I kind of worry that we might have allowed the pendulum to swing too far in that direction right now. Yeah, it's almost reminiscent of what's going on, I think, in terms of prior to 2001 and possibly even 2007. Because we have a stock market that's at all-time highs. We've interest rates that are near zero or even negative on the wholesale. And this is something that I, I think in your book, was it Gary Gordon had referred to yeah. as a almost like an expectation of how crisis may materialize based on the history. Absolutely. Gary Gordon is an economist at Yale University, and he was studying crises as far back as the 1800s. And essentially, he found that a common element of financial crises was that banks or companies that are like banks would issue things like bank deposits or currency that people would hold and believe were quite safe. And they would use the proceeds of that uh, issuance to then fund loans. But if the loans went bad, then they couldn't actually repay the deposits or redeem the currency in exchange for gold. Uh, so that would cause a panic as everybody rushed to get their money out at once. And, of course, they couldn't all get their money out at once because that money had been lent out for loans and so forth, just like in the movie It's a Wonderful Life starring Jimmy Stewart. In the modern era, something similar happened, only it wasn't banks that were issuing these things. It was things like money market funds that issued what appeared to be very safe shares worth, worth a dollar apiece. But when one prominent money market fund broke the buck because it had lent money to Lehman Brothers, it sparked widespread panic because people thought, hey, I thought my money here was safe. And they all rushed to get their money out. So the financial system had succeeded too well in making people feel their money was safe. And when that sense of safety disintegrated, it just caused a panic. And you look around a little right now, Frank, and you, and you kind of worry that there are similar phenomena going on right now. One of the big efforts of regulators since the last crisis has been to try and make the banks safer. And so the banks can't take as many risks and they have to have more capital. And that's a very good thing because a lot of banks around the world, in Ireland, in the United States, in, in Europe, failed or almost failed and had to be bailed out. But the problem that you then must uh, confront is that if banks are limited from lending, then lending activity will migrate elsewhere. 
And we see this happening in things like exchange-traded funds and other sort of shadowy parts of the financial system. And you worry that risks are starting to grow there. And there's a lot of volatility in those markets right now as people grapple with the idea that they've got their money stored in these um, funds that may not be safe if everybody tries to get their money out at once. So that goes back to my point that sometimes when you limit certain types of risk, you just create other types of risk that you can't see. So these could be the unintended consequences from all of these regulations. And are you talking about the Dodd-Frank Act that had been passed or updated in terms of trying to regulate the banks and subsequent to that, we had the shadow banks prior to the crisis, which precipitated the crisis? Yeah, so I think one of the things that regulators have tried to do in the United States and other countries is to convince people that no bank is too big to fail. And if they are aware of that all the time, then they'll be more careful lending their money to those banks. And those banks will actually have an incentive to be careful with that money and it'll avoid the risk taking. You know, the fact of the matter is we don't know whether it'll work. I mean, the theory is good, but I think we'll really have to see another crisis before we'll know. But one thing that in my book I talk about a lot is that one way to protect ourselves against disaster is to make use of the presence of danger to remind ourselves that things aren't always safe and to take steps that uh, keep us safe. So I I spend a lot of time talking about aviation. And it's actually kind of interesting when when you consider the fact that you know, you put 300 people on an aluminum tube and you fly them through the stratosphere at minus 50 degrees and they still land safely. And we do that, you know, millions of times a week. It's, it's a pretty amazing thing just how safe it is to fly when you consider how dangerous an enterprise it is. And so in my book, I sort of asked the question, why is it? How did we manage to make aviation so safe? And one of the things that was important is because people have always thought that flying is dangerous and it creates a sense of fear and a determination to make it as safe as possible. If you go back to the early history of aviation in the United States in the 1920s, the first pilots were these barnstormers who would fly around the country doing stunts, and they kept crashing and killing themselves. So the only thing people would read about in the papers with respect to airplanes was that they were always crashing and dying. And so it's interesting. The industry was crying out for federal regulation because they needed something to convince the public that it was actually safe to fly. And that tradition has continued to this day where the industry has tended to, both the airlines and the manufacturers, have tended to go along with efforts to make aviation safer as opposed to fighting them. Because one accident, for example, when DC-10s had several spectacular accidents in the 1970s, people stopped, refused to fly on DC-10s any longer. And it was in the interest of the industry to convince people it was safe to redesign the aircraft to anticipate things like wind shear and to uh, build automated collision avoidance systems. All these things were designed to reassure people that planes couldn't crash and that would be very safe. Now, in my opinion, it gets a little bit ridiculous. For decades, we weren't allowed to like turn our electronic devices on, on aircraft because they were afraid that would interfere with the uh, aircraft's communication systems, even though lots of tests had demonstrated that any interference was really minor and it simply wasn't going to threaten the aircraft. But, you know, nobody complained because people said, well, even a one in a billion chance this might actually cause an accident isn't worth taking. I think it would be interesting if you could sort of take that attitude in aviation and move it to other walks of life, like finance. In, uh, but I'm not sure if it's actually possible. People just aren't as scared of banks failing as they are of airplanes crashing. You know, even an airplane crash that just kills a few people. For example, there was an Asiana Airlines jetliner that crashed in San Francisco a few years ago. It only killed three people, and one of those persons was actually driven over by one of the rescue trucks while she lay wounded on the tarmac. But that accident just drew like reams and reams of attention and has led to changes in cockpit crew practice to prevent it from 
happening again. When you focus on every disaster with that kind of intensity, it does change people's attitudes, you know. Whereas the problem with financial accidents is that sometimes they literally just don't scare people enough. And so it doesn't change people's behavior. Is it because that they're less frequent? I know air, air flight accidents are less frequent as well, but I, financial, yeah. Well, people just don't have the same horror about a bank failing as they do about an airplane crashing. If their money was in that bank, they have trouble actually associating that with themselves. It's human nature that our sense of fear is and our the willingness to take precautions is closely associated with our ability to actually visualize ourselves in that position. And this is one of the problems. So, for example, we know that after a hurricane, people rush out and they get flood insurance to protect their homes um, because the image of homes being destroyed or flooded by this event is very vivid and very recent. But then after a little while, as the memories fade, they stop, they let the insurance lapse. But, of course, the fact that it's been some years since a hurricane doesn't tell you how long it'll be before the next one. And ironically, it's not just people who are like this. Even the insurance companies who sell the insurance are the same way. Once there's an earthquake or a hurricane, premiums for insurance shoot up and nobody wants to buy the insurance because it's too expensive because insurance companies are afraid of being wiped out by another disaster just like this. Then as time goes by and there's no earthquake and there's no hurricane and the insurance companies kind of get fat and happy and they have a lot of capital, so they start lowering premiums. And then people return, they buy more insurance. And then when the disaster comes along, insurance companies find themselves financially wounded by this event again. So it's it's this problem with our human uh, psyche, our inability to actually visualize threats that haven't happened for a long time or take a form that we haven't seen before. With banking crises, it's because of the too-big-to-fail attitude that governments are expected to come in and protect people's assets and it's the same here in ireland we had a lot of floods it was one of the wettest winters on record again the insurance companies weren't paying out but the government put in place an emergency amount of funding to uh, help out not everybody but uh, some people so if if that's going to be the attitude for some of these companies like insurance companies that they could step away from the responsibility and let someone else like socializing the costs through the taxpayer. They're going to repeatedly take on more and more risks as a as an insurance company or as a hedge fund. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, if you bail people out of the consequences of the risks they take, then it creates what economists call moral hazard. But there are ways you can actually deal with moral hazard. And uh, the insurance industry, for example, requires people to pay deductibles so that if your car is destroyed, you have to pay $1,000 before they'll repay, uh, pay to repair it. Um, and that's meant to discourage you from deliberately going out and wrecking your car just because you want to buy a new one. And you can do that with flood insurance and all these other types of insurance. With uh, banks, for example, deposit insurance creates moral hazard because depositors don't monitor their banks since they know that even if the bank fails, the government will give them their money back. But as a result, the government actually makes banks pay a, a premium for this insurance and they regulate the banks quite tightly. So you can have moral hazard, but it doesn't necessarily bring on more risk if you compensate for that by regulating things more closely. The problem comes along when you do this arbitrarily and you don't make people pay for the consequences. But, you know, Frank, I think that people also focus a little bit too much on moral hazard because one of the points I make in my book is that even if moral hazard didn't exist, people you'd still have the problem of people taking too much risk just because, once again, people are will believe things to be safe because they cannot imagine how they can't cannot be safe. 
even before our financial crisis, there wasn't a lot of evidence that the big banks were able to borrow more cheaply than the small banks. So how did they get in much trouble, so much trouble? Because they all made the same mistake. They thought because national home prices had never gone down, they never could go down. And because there had never been a national mortgage crisis and mortgages had always paid back 100 cents on the dollar, it always would be the case. And so by taking that for granted, they let their guard down, their underwriting got sloppy, and everybody took too much of this risk. And frankly, the same is true of other sorts of accidents. I mean, there was a study done in New Jersey. Some some economists went out and they, they surveyed people. And they put to, to them the possibility of a, uh, a chemical plant having a toxic spill. And they, put prob- they said, if this had a one in a million probability or a one in a hundred thousand probability or one in 10,000 probability, and they asked people to sort of assess how risky that was and how much they would pay for insurance. And people just didn't distinguish between those things. People cannot mentally distinguish between something that's one in a 10,000 and one in a 100,000 or one in a million. They're, our minds cannot deal with these low probability events. We basically sort of say, if the probability is low enough, we just assume it will never happen. And then when it does happen, it causes panic. And I think that's actually a better explanation for why we get financial crises. During the our financial crisis, it is the case that once the government bailed out Bear Stearns and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which were big mortgage companies, uh, investors probably did assume that they weren't going to let anybody else uh, fail either. And maybe that made them less willing, uh, sort of more comfortable. But honestly, I don't think that had a big effect on why those companies took so many risks and accumulated so much debt in the first place. I think that had more to do with the sense of safety. And similarly, people are going to go live in Florida next to the water, just because it's a really nice place to live. While I was researching my book, I interviewed the mayor of this little town on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. And what's interesting is that this town had seen a hurricane in 1969 destroy a very large apartment complex. Well, within 10 or 20 years, that uh, complex was rebuilt and they put a shopping center on its uh, uh, location. That shopping center was then destroyed by Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And now if you go back, you'll see that very close to that, uh, where that shopping center was destroyed, now building condominiums and townhouses. And so I called the mayor of that town and I said, well, why do people keep doing this? It seemed like two storms come along already in our lifetimes. And he said, well, look, every life's a risk. You know what I mean? You can live in the northern United States with blizzards, or you can live in San Francisco with earthquakes. There's nowhere where you can go. There aren't any risks. And frankly, it's no more likely to happen here than anywhere else. And then he finally said, you know what? Water sells. People want to live next to the water. And the water will attract way more people than it'll ever drive away. So so these psychological preferences we have cannot necessarily be corrected just by charging people the right insurance premium. We could possibly see another disaster in that area because now you have condominiums where you have masses of people living there, whereas with a supermarket, fine, you might lose a lot of your food or whatever. The the supermarket might lose a lot of stock. Well, look around the world right now. What are the fastest growing cities? There are cities like Mumbai in India. There are cities like Shanghai and Hong Kong in Asia, cities like Jakarta. Uh, You already have cities like Amsterdam and London and New York that are very close, and Tokyo, which are very close to and exposed to the water. And we know that sea levels are rising because of global warming, and uh, we're probably going to get more tropical cyclones. And yet we keep building up cities right in the way of these things. So you might say, well, that's ridiculous. We shouldn't be doing that. But let's ask the question why are people building up so much 
wealth in those cities. It's because being close to the water actually encourages commerce. You get lots of smart people together in cities like London and New York, and they actually become more productive because they can interact with each other and share ideas. And it makes these concentrations of, of human capital more wealthy. And when a place becomes wealthier, it actually has the means to both protect itself against future storms and to repair itself after the storm hits. So it might sound crazy, but it really isn't because the very things that make these cities vulnerable to disaster also makes them wealthy and able to prepare for disaster. So you might say, well, the only way to solve, uh, to protect New York against another Sandy is to like just up and move the city somewhere else or build gigantic gates out in the harbor to protect it against the next tidal wave, the way uh, Rotterdam has done. Well, the problem is if you build up these gates, it just means that the water outside the gates goes even higher. So the people who aren't flooded are essentially shifting their problem to somebody else. But the other problem is it's really costly. It's going to take a long time. I think it is much more sensible to actually assume that a storm is going to come along every 10, 15, or 20 years and make the city as resilient to that possibility so that you can repair afterwards. So in the Netherlands, for example, they have a program called Room for the River where they're actually tearing down dikes and allowing the river to flood uh, areas that used to be used for farming. And by allowing the floodplains to flood as they historically have, it actually relieves the pressure on the cities further downstream. In the case of New York, what uh, the city is doing is trying to put in place plans, for example, to make the buildings bounce back faster. And this could be something as simple as moving vital technology and equipment from the basement where it can flood to the second or the third floor. So what I'm trying to say here is you shouldn't necessarily believe that the solution to our vulnerability is to make sure we never get hit by a disaster again. Sometimes it's just about arranging our cities and our lives and our financial systems to be resilient to the disasters that come along and to remind ourselves all the time of this possibility so that we don't get complacent. Yeah, fantastic. I absolutely agree with you because it's almost like you're saying you can't mess with nature and we need to embrace and expect the changes that actually take place and build ourselves or cities around those particular behaviors of nature. Right. So in my book, and I'll just finish off on this thought if I could, which is in in my book, I talk about two schools of thought. The one I, I call the engineers, and these are people who look at problems and want to solve those problems and makes this civilization safer and protected from threats. And then I, there are people that I call the ecologists who believe that things like our environment and our economy are these complex systems, and every action has a reaction. Every effort to make ourselves safer has an unintended consequence, and they are very suspicious of this meddling. And uh, so what I believe that we as a society need is we need to listen to engineers because they do make us healthier and safer and richer. But we also have to pay attention to the ecologists who say, don't go overboard and try to fix things that are not fixable. Mother nature didn't mean for us to never be safe from disaster. And the nature of fast growing capitalist economies that risks and crises will sometimes happen. Don't try too hard to protect ourselves because what you want actually is a balance between the engineers and the ecologists. And Greg, do you mind me if, if I can ask you something about the beginning of the book? Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love the introduction and the first chapter. When you were talking and describing what the events were, that were going on in the 1970s and 80s, I was waiting for the likes of the Austrian economics to come up. And you, you did mention that. Oh, uh, Hyman Minsky and Joseph Schumpeter and those guys. And so. Yes. And, and then you mentioned uh, Keynes. And I think it was a fantastic condensed piece that you wrote, especially when you talked about what Volcker had to do, Paul Volcker, the Fed chairman at the time, this is something inevitably he had to do in terms of bringing in some regulations and capital requirements. 
but again, creating safety valves that eventually led to a state of moderation for a 25-year period, which eventually capitulated into the financial crisis that we actually see today. Where would Minsky come in in terms of his perceptions as to what was going on at that particular point in time? So you're absolutely right. Paul Volcker came in and dealt with some big problems like high inflation, weak banks, and so forth. And he dealt with them very forcefully. And it set the, um, paved the way for the 25-year great moderation of stable growth and uh, infrequent recessions. But Hyman Minsky uh, came along and he said, you know, this, all these steps that we're taking to protect the financial system uh, just are going to um, breed more risk-taking and instability later on. Hyman Minsky's uh, saying was stability is destabilizing. And Paul Volcker himself sort of agreed with that. And he worried that the kinds of steps he had taken in the 70s and the 80s were actually encouraging people to uh, let their guard down. And he had a funny line where he said that in the 70s, when he was at the Fed, he used to think, you know what, we need to shake people up as a good bank failure. But please, God, not in the area that I'm responsible for. (laughs) It reminded me of the line by St. Augustine, please, God, make me chaste, but not just not yet. And so I think that we will be living with this tension forever, frankly. The realization on our own parts that, yes, it is not a good thing to constantly save ourselves from every error, just as it's not a good thing to raise your children protected from every possible hardship or injury that comes along. That's not the way to create resilient children. But at the same time, we have to grapple with the tendency that every time disaster threatens, the urgency of the moment is to rush in and protect the society, just as if your toddler is about to fall down, your instinct is to rush over and grab them before they can fall. And I'm not smart enough to know how we can change human nature and fix that thing, except to say, once again, I think that the happiest medium is one where we build up a tolerance for small accidents, and small disasters, so that we are less likely to allow our risks to accumulate that eventually bring on big catastrophes and big disasters. Greg, do you think we're at an inflection point at the moment in the U.S. or the global economy? No, I don't think so. I think that we've done a lot to take risks out of the system. And what I worry about most is that people aren't taking uh, taking enough risks. As I say, what I worry about more is that the pendulum has swung too far against risk-taking. And the risks that are being taken are being channeled too far in the direction of financial risk and not real economy risk, people starting new businesses or buying homes. And what about China? There seem to be large net savers. Could they find themselves causing problems? Because it's the Americans that are borrowing a lot of money. We see situations whereby the Senate had to pass the cap in terms of the borrowing limits that the, the U.S. Com- government is actually undertaking. And there's always those threats to that part of the economy. What I worry about with China is that you have a leadership that's obsessed with political and economic stability. And so they've promised rapid growth year after year to their people. And to deliver that growth, they've had to like um, allow companies and local governments to borrow a lot of money. And I worry that they're making the same mistake our economy made in the run-up to the financial crisis. By convincing people that things are stable, they actually lay the seeds for instability by encouraging excessive borrowing and excessive speculation in the stock market. You know, the Chinese authorities have shown a lot of skill in managing this uh, rapidly growing economy without a disaster. But they're going to be tested in coming years as they try to actually slow things down and restore the health of the economy that is not so dependent on so much speculation and borrowing. Greg, I'd like to say thanks for when I was reading your book, there was an acronym for Greece, Ireland, Italy, Portugal and Spain. And we were typically referred to as pigs, but you reversed that and said G-I-I-P-S. So it was always seen as a bad acronym, I thought, even though it didn't mean the same thing in terms of how we were grouped together as a type of a peripheral poor economy relative to our counterparts in Germany and France and blamed for the financial crisis that ensued, even though from your book, 
the Germans had much to do with it in terms of their savings and causing problems with borrowers elsewhere. Sure thing. Well, Gibbs is also my initials. Yes, and I, I was going to say that, but I didn't know how you might take to it. But yeah, uh, I just see that, Jess. And maybe a nickname. Was it a nickname? <laughs> no, not really. No. <laughs> Greg, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining my Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. All right. Share with our listeners where they could find you. Uh, you can find me at the Wall Street Journal. You can also check out my webpage, www.gregip.com. And you can also go to Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com and order my book. I'd be delighted to hear what you think about it. And I definitely recommend it. And you can find all the links to Greg on economicrockstar.com forward slash Greg Ip. Greg, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. You are an economic rockstar. It's been a pleasure, Frank. Thanks for having me on your show. An absolute pleasure, Greg. Thanks very much and have a great week. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com, submit your name and email, and you will get each episode straight to your inbox. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.